0: Now, as you can tell from the seven coins that are back here, I've been working through seven events in the life of Jesus. And if you look at them closely, you can tell they all happen in that last week, which is called the Passion Week. And what I'm doing is focusing on Jesus' interaction with the people who are in charge of things in his day. And today, we're looking at the cleansing of the temple which is a very important event in the life of the Lord Jesus and recorded by all four gospel writers. John records it in his second chapter. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it in the last week of the life of Jesus. Some people think that maybe Jesus had done this before. Maybe on the front end of his ministry, he went to the temple and cleaned it as well. I know this, every time he went to the temple, he was frustrated by something that was going on there because this was a practice during his day that we're going to read about here in a minute. The cleansing of the temple is linked to Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Last week, we looked at Jesus as he was about to ride down the Mount of Olives on that donkey, and how he stopped and he looked over the city and he wept over it. I think when he gets to the temple, that broken heart is still happening to our Lord. And he is very emotional about the condition, not only of the city, but of the heart of the city. The church of the city. The house of worship. And I believe that Jesus holds responsible for much of what is wrong with that city. These priests, Pharisees and Sadducees, who are in charge of the house of worship and the religious leaders of the day. And when he goes into the house of worship, which is the center of the city, he continues with a broken heart. He was weeping on the mount, now he's sweeping in the temple. He wiped away the tears on the mount, now he's whipping his peers in the temple. You can't really come to this section of Scripture without sensing the weight of it on your heart. So, if we do this right this morning, there's going to be a weight on your heart about making sure your temple is clean. For the Scripture says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, who lives within you, and you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your heart and your spirit, which are God's, because you are the temple. And Jesus made that connection between the building and the body in John chapter 2, where after he cleansed the temple, he said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And John says he spoke of the temple of his body. So as we read about the cleansing of the temple, we want to be tuned into the New Testament reality. That there is not a central temple in Christianity somewhere in the world. But that every believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the cleansing is intended to be taken personally. So go ahead and do it. Just take it personal and tell the Holy Spirit up front, Lord, I want you to clean me up. Clean this house of worship. Clean this temple up. Whatever needs done in here, do it. Can you do that? Can you just start out saying, Lord, talk to me about my temple, my heart, and what needs to be cleaned up in here? I'm in Luke chapter 19. Verse 45, where the Scripture says, After he had wept over Jerusalem, then Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. I have been in a variety of houses of worship. One of the houses of worship that I went to was the Church of the Nativity In Bethlehem. Some of you have been to the Church of the Nativity. I shall never forget being there. One of the staff members this morning heard that I was going to mention that church and she said, you know, I don't ever want to go back there again. If you've ever been there, you know how dark a place it is, how cavernous the building is, how low the light is, how all the priests are dressed in black. And if you chatter or laugh there, you were likely to get a stare from somebody. In fact, I did get a stare from somebody while I was there, and I realized that I was being too uh, happy, and so I needed to calm down. And I remember the feeling of being in there with hundreds of pilgrims and them staring at me uh, and communicating with their eyes and their demeanor. You need to be quiet. It didn't feel like a house of prayer to me. It didn't really feel like a house of joy or praise to me. It felt very different. Is that Allison Smith? Hello, Allison. Back from Texas. Former staff. It's good to see you. I've been in houses of worship that were just bonkers. Have you ever been there? I mean, I have been. In places where I was standing there thinking, what is going on? What happened here? Because it was chaos in the house of worship. Have you ever ever been there where you couldn't understand what was being said? You know, Paul the Apostle wrote to a church that was having such a good time in worship and he said, when outsiders come in, they're going to think you've lost your mind. Let everything be done decently in order was written to a church that was on the other end of the spectrum from the church of the nativity. This is the complete opposite of the church of the nativity. You know, we find in Scripture that worship involves both meditation and contemplation, thinking about God's Word, as we are doing now, and also praise. In fact, the Scripture says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands... Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing, with joyful song. And part of what every worshiper of Jesus Christ needs to learn to do, whether you can carry a note or not, is let something in your heart make it to your lips as you're worshiping. And don't hold it back. Do you know the joy of just throwing back your head and singing praise to the Father without inhibition. Just singing to Him. You know the joy of that? It is a glorious thing. To give praise to the Lord for He is good because His mercy endures forever. The song the choir sang this morning has a Katrina connection for me. You know, and I know I'm going to make it through. And whatever trouble may come my way, I know I'm in his hands because of what he's done in my life. And it stirs up the memories of the hardship and trouble and sorrow of those days. But it also reminds me that whatever situation I'm in now, God is able. And song and praise that's what they're supposed to do in the house of worship. When Jesus came to the house of worship, he found a situation that was unbearable to him. And he discovered that the people there were more pray than they were worshipers, more pray than prayer in the house of worship on that day. And he said, you've made it a den of robbers. And I want to read for you the text that he was quoting from Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 7, 9 through 11. Just listen up to the text that Jesus referred to as he went into this house of worship. Will you steal and murder? Commit adultery and perjury? burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Somebody would say, Jesus, you don't need to be so upset about these money changers here in the house of worship. They need to be here. Pilgrims are coming from all over the world. They have those ugly pagan coins in their pockets with images of Caesar on them, and they can't use that to pay the temple tax. They have to use the half shekel to pay the temple tax. That's the only coin that we'll take here. And so a pilgrim coming from anywhere in Asia Minor or Africa to the house of worship, and they did from all over the world, they had to get their money changed in order to pay the temple tax. And the money changers were right there in the outer court of the temple, sitting up their tables. And you could hear the clanging of the coin And they were getting a pretty good fee. It reminds me of when I climbed Pike's Peak when I was a boy. And me and my brothers uh, got to the top. We didn't actually climb it. We went in a car. But part of the way you had to climb to get to the very point of the peak. And uh, I got up there and realized I had to go to the restroom. It was the first time I'd ever seen a restroom that you had to pay to use. I'd never seen it before. And we were scrambling to get enough quarters to open those little doors. They had us over a barrel, though. I mean, what can you do? And that's what they were doing in the house of worship. The pilgrims were coming and they were saying, hey, what can you do? You've got to have a half circle. You may have come from Corinth or from Alexandria, but you've got to change the coin. And we're going to make some money off you as you do. And then there were other folks in the court, in that outer court, and Herod had built this temple. It had magnificent colonnaded courts. It was huge. It was much bigger than the first temple that Solomon built in all of its expanse here. And there were folks in the temple there who were providing for the pilgrims who had come all over the world to worship in the house of worship. They were providing sacrificial animals. And so they had them penned there, the doves and the... the, kid goats and the lambs and they kept them right there in the outer court as I read this text and if a pilgrim came from anywhere in the world well they could go up there and they'd buy a lamb to make a sacrifice now they were coming too far to bring their own lamb that would have been the preference during the Passover they set aside the lamb they were going to sacrifice and the children might feed it for two or three weeks before the sacrifice happened. And they'd become attached to that lamb. It was a very personal thing to give the best of your lamb, lambs to the Lord. But here, because of necessity, they could not bring their animals. And so, as they came to the great expanse of that temple court, they had merchants set up to sell them animals. And they were asking a pretty penny for those animals too. And Jesus had always been enraged about the practice, I am sure. But on this particular day, he comes in and he is upset. He has come down the mountain. They have sung that he is the king. He has received their praise and refused to hinder it. In fact, he has told his enemies who objected to the praise, if they don't say, blessed is the king, the rocks are going to cry out. And now he who is the king and has come into Jerusalem as the king this day becomes the judge to clean the house of worship. My house shall be called a house of prayer, he says. Jerusalem needs a house of prayer. He is brokenhearted over this city in part because they have no legitimate house of prayer. They have turned their interests to other things in the house of prayer. Jesus knows his city well. He knows the people well. He knows the culture. As his people down through the ages, including in New Orleans, ought to know. We ought to be open-eyed about the city where we live, its troubles and its trials, its difficulties and its hardships. And they ought to break our heart as Jesus was broken-hearted over Jerusalem. Jerusalem needed a house of prayer that was truly that where people could come and find God's presence and confess their sins to the Lord and, like Jesus illustrated in a parable one day, drop their head before the Father and say, Be merciful to me, a sinner. But it was too clamorous. All of the activity in those courts was too much. It was no longer a house of prayer. It had become a robber's den more than anything else, the city of New Orleans needs the church to be the church. To be the church. We are not a business like other businesses might be, although we may share some characteristics. We are not one nonprofit among many, which you contribute to and try to do good work. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We are seeking to follow him in our time and in our place. And more than anything, the city needs us to be the church, energized by the Holy Spirit, going forth with the name of Christ, seeking to emulate him and follow him in our world. That's who the church needs to be. I know there's a new series on ABC TV. That talks about good Christian people in an awful way. Newt Gingrich is recorded as saying it reflects an unchristian bias for the culture to put this on national TV. I hope I'm big enough as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ to say, you know what? That may be a characterization. But unfortunately, it has truth in it. I can see it in my life. Myself, departing from the central calling God is giving me. Becoming materialistic in my own view of the world. Worried about how much stuff I have as opposed to my neighbors. Greed working its way into my life and pride working its way into my life. And I know when I look at me, and I look at the church, that we are not perfect. And we need to be living in confession, asking for God's forgiveness on a regular basis, not tolerating attitudes that we know are against Christ in our own hearts and lives. Attitudes of superiority that we talked about last week, and arrogance that develops because we suppose ourselves to be chosen and become arrogant instead of serving. It happens, it's happened in every generation. We are celebrating the 200th birthday of Charles Dickens, one of the great writers in England. We watched a little bit of Oliver Twist last night. And Dickens claimed himself to be a devout Christian and believed in the tenets of our faith. But from the inside, as a follower of Jesus, he wrote about the failure of Christian people and the church. We are a body We are all connected, and the failure of one affects us all. We will be unleashed in just a few minutes into this community, and we will scatter to its stores and its schools and its businesses and its streets and its restaurants. And we will be out there as we should be, in our city. And it is my prayer every day that we represent the Savior well in our business and education and our social life. That we are communicating well the good news of Jesus Christ, that we as a congregation are holy in the midst of a city that needs Christ. We will win this city not by becoming like those who do not know Christ, but maintaining our holiness as we love them and draw them to the Savior. And the things that are mentioned here in the book of Jeremiah by the prophet, as he describes the house of God as a den of robbers, and the Lord says, I am watching... These sins I wonder about, even in the church of Jesus Christ. He mentions them here. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, follow other gods, and then come and stand before me and say, we are safe in the house of worship. It is incumbent on every person who bears the name of Jesus in this room to leave these doors and live the precepts of Christ and hold the standard high and be a serious follower of Jesus in the decisions you make and the behavior that you engage in so that your friends will know your family will know your co-workers will know your students will know that you indeed are a different kind of person And you live a different kind of life. You have a different vocabulary. You come at things in a different way. You have a different perspective. And the hurting and the sorrowful and the wounded in your circle of friends see you as a safe place to come. And when they're hurting, they find you to share their heart with you because they know you love them. Both the positive and negative attributes. Both the things we do and the things we don't do are to typify our walk with the Savior and declare our allegiance to Him every day. Watch out what goes on here and here in your mind and in your heart. For These are the beginning places of the departure of hands and feet. And you want to make sure that your attitudes line up with the Savior. Jesus came to clean this temple because of attitudes that the religious leaders had. And Lord, spare me from thinking about the church just in terms of money. For it is easy for a religious professional to do that. And that's what I am. I'm a pastor. And I make my living through the gifts of God's people. And it is easy for somebody who does that to begin to see the church in terms of dollar signs. And so we must guard our hearts. Sometimes we worry about the survival of the church, and we see the church only in terms of dollars and cents. We need to be careful. Lest we fall into the very trap that made the Savior grab a whip. More pray than prayer was happening in this temple. Another attitude more mine than thine. The church is mine. Hey, I like for people to talk in the first person personal pronoun about their church. It's my church. I like to hear that. I much prefer it to you using the third person, their church. Yeah, those people down at the church, they do thus and so. If you talk about the church in the third person as if you weren't part of it, you're probably not feeling part of it in your mind and in your heart. You feel like it belongs to somebody else. They do this and that instead of we or I. So i like for you to talk about the church in the first person. And I want you to. And I want you to have a sense of propriety about the church and have a sense of it being yours, that you are a member and that you belong to it. But make no mistake The church of Jesus Christ is not mine nor yours but his and Jesus himself exercised this truth again and again in his ministry and when he enters this temple on this day he is going as somebody who claims that house He says, it's my father's house. Even from age 12, when he thought about the temple, he thought about it as my father's house. And when his parents found him, he said to them, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? When he told the parable that typified the wonderful God who is creator God to us, the parable of the prodigal son, when the elder son comes to the house, Jesus says. He hears music and dancing in the house. And the story of the prodigal son is a story of the return to the father's house. Be careful when the house becomes more mine than thine. More yours than his. Who gave you this authority to do these things? They often ask the Savior. I mean, where do you get the power to exercise this cleansing and carry the whip in the temple? Jesus was defending the house of His Father. Be careful lest you fall into this trap of thinking that the church belongs to you more so than to God. There may be some good soul here who worries too much about the church as if you carried the whole weight on your shoulders and you have an anxiety about the church of Jesus Christ. Maybe you worry about your local church and you're overwrought about it. And maybe about churches in general, as the times change and people change and things change about the church, maybe maybe that has caused you anxiety and distress of heart. Let me speak to you as a pastor for these almost 40 years. I, too, worry about the church as if it were my own. And sometimes I cannot sleep at night because I'm concerned about the church. I remember John Bassanio talking with us one day and he had gotten to be quite large. And we said, what's up with that? And he said, I get heavy when I worry about my church. I have to have some comfort food when I worry about my church. I'm glad you feel connected to the church. I want you to feel that you belong. This is your church in a very important way. But even more fundamentally, it is not yours, but God. And every once in a while, deacons and Bible teachers and people who care about the church have to just give it to him. Lock, stock and barrel and say, Lord, it's your church. I don't know what to do. I can't understand all the times. I don't know about it, but it's your church, Lord. I give it back to you. You can have it back from my hands. I can't fix its problems. It belongs to you. And just speaking personally, it is such a relief for me to remind myself periodically that it is not mine but thine, Lord. The church belongs to you. And through these 2,000 years, it has taken shapes and forms and languages and styles and and architecture and clothing that go the entire array of human experience. And yet today, it continues to take root in every people group and culture and language in the world because it is his church. And he says... Upon the rock of my salvation, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you are living in the negativity of the day and time and concerned that Christianity may not survive your generation, I have good news for you. You need not concern yourself with the church as if you are its preserver and propagator for Jesus himself will do that he will build the church and a great relief and peace will pour into your soul when you acknowledge Lord it's not mine but thine the church belongs to you it's great to pray everywhere and I do I run into people who say, I can pray really good in a boat in the marshes. Hey, I'm with you. (laughs) I can do that too. I can pray looking at mountains and hills and running water. I love the flowers and the birds. And I walk with the Lord when I walk through a meadow. I'm telling you it's true. But we have set aside a house that in a special way is the Father's house. A house of prayer where we come to bring our concerns to Him. And though we gave our tithes and our offerings and expended thousands upon thousands of man-hours in the construction of this house of worship, it all belongs to Him. It's His. And to give it back to Him on this day is part of our act of worship and say, Lord, it's yours. Not mine, but thine. And thank you, God, that you are caring for your church. There was a problem in the temple. And this is the third attitude I want to mention to you. The attitude of being too small for all. More pray than prayer. More mind than thine. And too small for all. Now, Luke does not record the whole quote. But if you go back to Isaiah, you discover that Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 56, 6 to 8. Listen to this, okay? I want you to hear it. And foreigners... Who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship him. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain, and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Is your heart too small for all? Is your perspective too small for all? Are you looking at things too narrowly in the church of Jesus Christ, in the work of God in the world? Are you too small for all? The hugeness of the temple is impressive. Those outer courts stretched for hundreds of yards. But that is not the great size of the temple. Its hugeness was not its geography, but its theology of all. All peoples, all nations, all ethnicities, all languages. This is why the racial segregation of churches is such a sadness to the church of Jesus Christ. It belies the very essence of the church as a house of prayer for all nations. This is why the generational grading of the house of worship is not really an answer for any of us because this is a house for all. I understand the principle of the homogeneous unit. And we practice something like that when we get small in our church. We have small units that are age-graded, so you can find a grandmother with whom you relate, or a young parent with whom you connect, or another fourth-grader. And that's important to do. And I understand its utility in the church of Jesus Christ. But that circle around Jesus always included not only the twelve... But others as well, and they were welcomed in the church and in his circle. The women, the tax collectors, the Gentiles came close and stayed close to Jesus because he understood both the small and the all of worship. What, after all, is a house of prayer? These courts in Jerusalem were built and dedicated to the worship of God, to prayer. This was their fundamental and essential purpose. Where was this barnyard and this bank? You may not realize this, so I want you to listen close, okay? The the temple of Herod is divided into various courts. There is a court of the Gentiles, which is a huge court, and was the area where most of the assembling took place. When you came closer to the inner temple, to the Holy of Holies, and there was another word for the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, the closer you got, the more exclusive it became. And a Gentile left the the court of the Gentiles and went into the court of the Jews only under the penalty of death. There was a sign that said Gentiles cannot enter here. So if you came from Africa to worship in the house of God in Jerusalem, you could only go to the court of the Gentiles. You could not go in to the inner place. And it's in that outer court where the barnyard and the bank have taken over. And so the foreigners who arrive, who come from all over the world. That's the experience they have, and that's all the experience they have of the house of worship, this noisy, stinky place where it's so hard to pray. I think about our own lives and how in the center we say, hey, my heart's right before God. You ought to see me when I pray. But don't watch me when I go out Saturday night. You know, that doesn't really pertain to who I am as a spiritual being. We've got ourselves compartmentalized so that we pretend we're pure. Even though in these outer courts we practice things we know dishonor God. Whatever you practice in the outer court of your life threatens to destroy the inner sanctuary that belongs to God. And we must consistently, as Jesus taught in the cleansing of the temple, keep clean not only the Holy of Holies, but every court of our lives so that it is a house of prayer for all, everybody who sees us, everybody we meet, every circle of our life, committed unto Him, and cleansed by His Spirit. Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your house, for this house of prayer. Lord, thank You that the nations come. Father, I pray that You will open our hearts to the all of worship and Lord that you would show us the inconsistencies in our own lives that need to be changed show us where to repent do your cleansing work in us we pray in Jesus name Amen